This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. All right, welcome to Oak Shape Podcast. We are sitting down tonight with a guy who uh, works out all the time at like 4 in the morning. And he shoots big mule deer, (laughs) amongst other animals. He also works for Hoyt. And... uh, He's a family man. Evan, what's up, buddy? Not much, buddy. How are we doing tonight? I'm tired, man. I've been up since 4, 4 a.m. Yeah, I I hear you. Uh, 3, 3.30 for me. God, you're an animal. I do, I coach mornings once a week, so I got nothing to complain about. Nice. Yeah, I, uh, Kaylee, my wife, has started a, uh, she started working for UPS, uh, over the Thanksgiving holidays, and uh, she's on evening shift, so I uh, have my schedule set to where I'm up at 3.20, 3.30 every morning and at the gym between 4 and 4.05 and get my weights and my cardio and stretching and all that good stuff in and get to the office by 7. Dude, that's legit. So is the gym open 24 hours a day, or do you have to wait for someone to open up? Yeah, we have to wait for someone to open up. Um, the location I'm at does open at 4 a.m. Usually they're good about having someone there. Uh, one time I took my pre-workout and <laughs> ended up waiting an hour for someone to show up to open it. So, Oh, yeah, I don't doubt it. I used to manage gyms and uh, not all were 24 hours that I managed and those ones we'd as managers we'd get the phone call when no one showed up and it happened more than once that's for sure but that's that's for the members man the people waiting who got up and are ready to go and no one's there yeah and it's it's funny and I'm a I'm a you know known people watcher anyway but uh watching the people walk up to a completely dark gym and pull on the doors like it's open but all the lights are out and there's no one home and we're actually the doors will just open for them and the lights will come on and it, yeah it's funny well dude that so. takes some serious discipline to get the what time do you go to bed or what do you shoot for um i shoot for 9 15 9 30 yeah so and i 
I know I'm still short on sleep. Um, that puts me right around uh, six to six and a half hours a night. So, and a lot of it depends on what the the house looks like. Um, I've got some laundry to do tonight, uh, kind of clean up the kitchen, and I need to do some meal prep tonight. So, eight thirty here. So it'll probably be uh, closer to ten by the time I get lined up and kind of everything taken care of. And I'm sure my boss would love me to shave before we head to Redding, California next week. So yeah, should probably get that taken care of too. Well, we're gonna get we're gonna touch on Redding in a second. Um, I don't have a lot of fitness guys on the Elk Shape podcast. You know, I'm like on the far end, and I've got a few guys on here. But I know you're up there. You're on. You're you're fitness junkie. So walk us through like okay obviously mom's not there not everybody's got kids they don't know understand the shit show every night trying to get kids to bed on time and have some adult time which is just just basically peace and quiet and then you gotta like straighten up or your wife's gonna get on your ass if you leave dishes out or whatever and you know everyone's got to pitch in run a household and then you said meal prep so break that down what's on the menu for tomorrow brother not exactly sure right now um what are you doing right there? I can hear I can hear you doing something. Yep, I'm I'm in the freezer looking at what I've got. Um, <laughs> I've got some uh, I got some chicken breasts. Um, I've got one, two, I've got five pounds of uh, Kansas whitetail pulled out. I'm going to one of the engineers uh, from Hoyt tomorrow. We're gonna just kind of chill with the kids and and get some arrows built for him. He's gonna run a dual setup, uh, so he'll have a a lighter. Wait, you know, 400 grain setup for whitetail and antelope, mm-hmm. and then his elk setup. We're gonna run a, a heavy injection with that new um, East and Out cert. Yeah. Uh, so those should come in about 490, 493 grains finished. Um, and so I've got I've got some AAE veins pulled out for him, and we're gonna go over have a little fletching party and do some grilling on the Traeger. And I usually. Since I've been fortunate enough, you know, I got a lifetime license in Kansas. I can get six deer tags. Six so, deer fly. tags. Yep, yep. One one buck, and then I can pick up five additional doe tags. And I was able to take uh, take three deer this year. So I've I've got a freezer full of meat. Um, I've been real blessed to to have that opportunity. Uh, I got a couple guys in in the office and marketing with me that you know kind of kind of get on me. You know if. Uh, if you see any of my social media posts, you know, I do a lot of talking about, you know, the hunt isn't about the, the animal that's harvested and the size of them and all that. And um, some of the guys give me trouble. It's like, well, yeah, because you're going out and, you know, you're passing 150 inch deer. Like, it's not about the experience, is it? Well, when, when you know where animals over 150 inches are, it's kind of hard to take a 150 inch animal when you know you got five doe tags in your pocket it for me so dude that's still 150 inch deer in my neck of the wood is hard to come by in fact i thought i finally crossed that barrier this year with a mountain buck i've been hunting for a couple years finally stroked him and um i don't always tape my white tail that's a lie yes i do and uh <laughs> he was like 149 and a couple eights and i was like and that's net he grossed He's, over 150, but and, and I, yeah. don't, I usually don't go with net score, but I kind of wanted to net 150, which is still kind of my goal. But checking my inventory, I don't know if that's going to happen next year. I got one buck in mind, and I don't, I don't. We'll have to see what he does. He was probably the low 140s last year, and after I shot that mountain buck, uh, it was still late elk, 
So I had just an elk tag, and I had a couple of bulls come through. It's public land. It's in the mountains. It's it's ridiculous. I had a couple bulls come through, and uh, so I, I went up there, and I ended up seeing this buck that was my, my number two shooter, and got to see him in daylight. And he circled me and was so cautious, and he actually would actually, if I had a tag, I probably wouldn't have gotten a shot just because I don't think he ever really stopped staring, smelling, and walking yeah. so cautiously never really and, presented yeah but i did get a good look and man he, yeah he was probably like a low 140 buck and uh good frame and we'll see what he does next year so yeah and i love and a lot hunting. and a lot of that and your your best that whitetail buck is is over 10 inches better than anything i've taken you know i grew up in in a western west central part of the kansas and for whatever reason i never got on that whitetail kick i i remember coming home from middle school uh, we had just moved into Kansas uh, from Nebraska, where I was born. Uh, first deer season, and of course, didn't grow up in an archery family. We were we were firearms. Um, I was a competitive rifle shooter. We did you know upland with shotguns, and deer was all with uh, centerfire high power rifles. My brother and I see a rack from three blocks away sticking out of the bed of dad's truck. Uh-oh. And I don't think that we have ever run faster in our lives than we cover those three blocks. And in the back of Dad's truck is a 181-inch gross three-by-four mule deer. And it's it's still when I when I hit a mountain or when I go back to Kansas and when I'm looking and evaluating deer, that's the buck that I always have pictured. He's 26 inches outside spread. Um, from his pedestals to his his highest tine, he's over 28 inches tall. He literally has everything that you could ever imagine. If he'd have been a, a full, even four by, he would have uh, grossed like 192. So, and it was just one of those things. Like at that point in my life, that's when I fell in love with mule deer. And I've I've shot a couple whitetails. Um, my best whitetail archery buck is a 136. Shot him spot and stock, less than eight yards in Kansas. He was in a perfect position for a stock at the wrong time. Yeah. Um, I was I was changing between jobs. The job I was going to, they weren't open yet. I was I was moving in to basically run and manage the day-to-day operations of the facility. And my boss called me and goes, I don't need you here. Like I've I've got my guys for the construction crew that they're doing their thing. Um, what I need you to do is, you know, go out, make phone calls, make contacts, kind of start building an inventory base of what we're going to need, and and get me some prices and and work on what our on hand stock is going to be, and you know, get me what our overhead is going to be. And if you can do that from Kansas, by all means, we're not opening for four weeks go to kansas for three weeks and go hunt so i did and one of my landowners that uh i grew up with he called me and said i've got a 32 plus inch wide mule there with a drop time on this property completely forgot i had it um was out cutting corn and he's running down dry land corn in front of my combine header and he's big yeah and so I spent two and a half weeks just on that property, staying on the fringes, glassing down into it. Um, ended up having five what I would consider as you know mature mule deer bucks on it that were all 175 to. Uh, I think that one probably would have ended up going a 
206, 208, depending on what his drop was. Um, it was hard to tell in the cut corn, but uh, I had five bucks that were all in that, you know, five and a half plus age range, and I mean, well over Pope and Young, and was sitting on the corn that night. I had 23 does come out, start feeding in front of me. They had a small forky with them. And I turned over and was looking at the uh, the small line of, of trees along the dry creek bottom. And there was a whitetail buck pushing two does. And he finally bedded down and thought I knew what buck he was and wasn't even paying attention. Watched the, uh, the mule there kind of do their thing. And he turned when the whitetail does jumped the fence and went into the corn. And when I looked back over at him, he is well outside of his ears. He ended up going 20 inches outside. And I was like, well, I really can't pass up an opportunity and stalked in on him and shot him at just under eight yards. And that's my best whitetail. Dang, eight yards. Yep. I, I don't even like to shoot animals that close. I was like, just, I know it's, dude, it's so much adrenaline. Um, so I got all these questions about, you got, you went off on the tangent on mule deer. So, all right. I have a buddy who's non-resident who's drawn a Kansas mule deer tag. Is that that's pretty hard to do, isn't it? Extremely hard to do. Okay. Um, and it, and it depends on what unit. Most of them are going to be. I think it's one five seventeen sixteen, kind of all on that western side. Each one of those units have a different allocation as far as total. Um, mule deer stamps for non-residents and uh, like if unit five has 60 total mule deer stamps that's 60 mule deer tags broken up between archery rifle and muzzleloader for non-residents what happens when you put in is you put in for your whitetail tag at the same time you spend an additional i think it's 130 bucks now or 150 and it gets you into your mule deer stamp option. So if you draw your whitetail buck tag, because you've paid for your mule deer stamp, your name goes into a secondary drawing for the mule deer tag. If you draw the mule deer tag, your Kansas tag now becomes an either species buck tag. If you don't draw the stamp, you still retain that whitetail buck tag, but you just get to watch all those beautiful mule deer look at you at 20 yards and just go <laughs> you can't shoot me gotcha. so and mule deer mule deer do not have a point system so if you have a point your point only applies to being able to draw the whitetail tag okay so, so true lottery true lottery yep okay that's pretty dope and then the other thing I was going to ask you as far as Kansas mule deer go is like it there is not a lot of public land on the western side of Kansas correct for mule deer Western Western side has more than than other places in the state. Yeah, the pro and I won't say the problem. You have to be very careful, especially with you know all the different mapping options that are out there. Um, I use Onyx Hunt. Uh, there's a couple other ones that are in that range. Um, I think they work the best for what I'm using them for. When you look at those, it's kind of hard to tell because they're starting to get a, a topographical feature built in. But looking at, you know, what are you looking at as far as are these ravines? Are these just fields with terraces in them and, and small channels? Um, a lot of what's in the walk-in or the Weehaw program in Kansas is really for upland bird. Um, so you've got to really kind of look at 
what is what's the vegetation like kind of how does the terrain roll are you seeing like you know rocky coolies um and the the specific piece that i've hunted the last two years and and killed the two bucks on that i have it's very very distinct where i can tell what's ag around it the coolies or the you know the real deep cuts is limestone rock and it shows up really really well when you zoom in that yep that's rock features i can find a pond i've got a stock tank on it and it was just you know looking at it it was kind of the perfect place between a bunch of ag for cover for those bucks to you know take those does in to escape and take them in to breed okay i gotcha so before hoyt you worked for kafaru international yeah was at kafaru for a couple weeks and uh oh a couple uh, weeks couple weeks yeah my main stint of my work in colorado was um at the local pro shop oh Um, and i was i was there for uh 10 years almost 10 years so so you've worked on a few bows in your day yeah yeah, a couple okay (laughs) a couple here and there that helps and then how did you uh land the job with hoyt um believe it or not i had applied for four different jobs that had come up um through the hoyt website just emailing the uh jobs email and never got any response never heard anything back and i had talked to a couple different people there as you know pro staff managers kind of moved in and out and never really got anywhere and and truly now that i'm in the position i don't I know exactly why I was getting the response I was, but I thought that I could do more. At the time in the shop, there was basically the the owner, myself, and one other full-time guy. All three of us were shooting Hoyts, and the owner came to me and said, you know, I, I hate to ask you to do this, but we're losing some sales on some of these other bows, and I could really use you shooting another company that we sell would you know would you be willing to pick up a different bow brand to try and you know keep our sales up and so i kind of talked with the wife about it and she knows the relationship i had with our sales rep for hoyt and she goes yeah i mean if it's going to be better for the shop i mean they're the ones who are paying you said, yeah well that's true and picked up another bow brand went to a tournament shot the tournament high score after having the bow for two days damn and a picture of me was taken by one of our kids that was in the shop. And, of course, it made its way to our gold tip rep, who's best friends with our Hoyt rep, who took it to our Hoyt customer service guy, who put it on the desk of Mike Looper, the VP of sales and marketing. And within 18 hours, Mike Looper had my cell phone number and was texting me to give him a call ASAP. Nice. So, well, then you made it happen for yourself. That's pretty cool. I like that. Um, Obviously, shooting is in your prowess. Shooting is almost in your DNA with your background. Is there a high degree of transferability from firearm to archery when it comes to shooting mechanics? Extremely. And archery is something I I got into in college in my my fifth year. I I took a redshirt year for uh, NCAA athletics. Yeah. Between, you know, Holding 12 to 14 hour course loads. Um, I was working in the dorms as an RA. Um, I was the student athlete ambassador for our university athletes to our uh, conference. And I was trying to train 30 to 50 hours a week and travel. So, what I was doing to kind of break up the, the routine and the monotony 
was I actually got a bow and started shooting archery again just to work on some of the fundamentals and mechanics and training, how I wanted to look at the target and the perspectives um, and going through the motions and really doing a lot of blind bail work. Um, and the, the crossover was amazing. Uh, the biggest difference, because uh, you're, you're talking archery trigger, if you're shooting an index versus a rifle trigger, really is the, the mechanics of how the body sets up behind the firearm or the bow and the structure in how you do your bone to bone contact, you know, a firearm, you want to stay completely behind with the mass of your body. Uh, keep the index finger on the very tip on the pad of your finger right. on the center of the trigger squeeze, bring all that mass and inertia right back into as close to the center of your chest as possible, straight vertical recoil and you recover you come right back down for your second shot or third with an archery same premise you want to keep straight lines the connections are different you have grip wrist forearm shoulders into your back elbow connected through your wrist back into your trigger a lot of guys want to do the whole slap and shoot and hammer the trigger (laughs) what you want to do is you want to you know get that finger hooked and get buried deep into the trigger a little bit of pressure and squeeze your scapula into your spine, create that back tension and pressure. And the key to that whole system is the three fingers on your shooting hand that is not your index and your thumb. A lot of guys want to grab the strap. If you let those relax and just hang off the strap, as you apply pressure and start pulling and squeezing against that back wall, the wrist strap is going to slide on your skin naturally, pushing and maintaining and building pressure into that trigger and then releasing on its own. So you're taking an index trigger and you're shooting it with back tension. Right. And what happens when you release, that, that hand follows through. And basically, if you can draw a straight line from your wrist to your knuckles through your arrow that maintains that straight line with the target for your follow through similar thing as far as the biomechanics and the structure um just slightly different mechanisms yes so everything you just said i kind of i learned the hard way and i've been shooting a bow since 2001 and i'm not a huge competitive archer i do think down the road i want to go that way i have a target bow actually from kevin wilkie uh, there you go. Yeah, I think that guy's bow is awesome. And what my point is is like when I finally switched to true like hinge, and this was about four years ago. I noticed a significant difference in my groups. I mean, so significant that I was like, I want to hunt with this, like a lot of guys do. And then um, fast forward, I sw- I would always go between some sort of thumb barrel that I shot just like you said through back tension and then I, you know, a hinge and I could go back and forth and really I figured that the thumb barrel would be a little bit more realistic in a hunting scenario. I could punch it like if I needed to or something. Cause sometimes you could, you do and it, yep. not very often, but sometimes you do. Well, I've told this story before, but it was actually a spot and stock bear hunt. And I had this bear in the bottom of a Canyon and I glassed it forever away. And I had like 30 minutes to get there. I hopped on my dirt bike for my glassing knob, hauled ass, uh, of course I was wearing a helmet, and got pretty much about a thousand feet above it and just 
dropped straight down to the very bottom, and then I had to cross a very high spring runoff creek and just got lucky and found kind of a downfall, got across, and then the bear was just slightly above me. And, of course, on the other side, the wind was sucking right down in my face. So I made a very quick stock, and I was within range. And the bear was in a ravine, like a feeder creek ravine, and I kind of got to a spot where I felt like I could probably execute a shot, and I didn't think I was going to be able to get any closer. And the bear was just doing what bears do. They're always moving. They're always feeding. And it's just, man, they cover ground fast. I'm like, this is your shot. I ranged at 55 hooked on with my thumb barrel and uh let off an awesome shot i mean it broke perfectly the arrow was true but the bear got hit straight past through and turned and ran down the ravine and not like on purpose but just by happenstance right at me and i'm like sweet another shot so i just loaded hooked on and that bear came running by me about five yards and i had trained myself to shoot that thing like a back tension uh evan i couldn't get the shot off like the bear ran by and i told the i told it to shoot and it wouldn't and uh right then and there i was like okay i gotta figure out how to shoot my you know my index like a back tension and that's when i started figuring out the three finger thing i'm so glad you said that hired a coach and i think that's important like i charge people to come train with me and those people see value in be, having the instruction and experience. I think archery is no different. I think if you're struggling to put together groups or you feel like you're just in a slump when it comes to shooting or maybe you've never had any instruction and you shoot pretty good, but at the end of the day, it's good. It's not great. Yep. You might consider getting a lesson and probably have a few bad habits that you need to muscle memory, coach yourself and get, you know, get yourself on film and really break yourself down and become a better archer, which will extend itself to more successful hunting. You know, and, and you made a really good point with, with the coach, and you're never too old to learn something new. And when you look at a lot of today's top archers, they were hunters first who started doing 3D or target indoor because it was something to do in the winter, and they were looking for a way to better themselves for hunting season. That's, I mean, my my old boss, that's exactly how he got into it. He was a bow hunter from New Jersey that moved to Colorado, wanted to hunt elk, and knew it was a different game. He's an 11-time world champion, has been on factory pro staffs for over 27 years because of what target archery did for him. Mm-hmm. And he's a hunter, like through and through. That's all he does. Um, being on the fire department, um, he's still a, an active lieutenant. He trades off. He has the entire month of September off to go chase elk. He has the entire month of November off to go chase whitetails. Oh, that's awesome, man. Well, archery is something that fascinates me, and it never gets old. In fact, I'm going to get a few arrows off. It's still almost. I got a little bit of daylight when we're done here. And uh, just try to get a few off every day, keep that muscle memory strong. And, uh, you know, it's all about reps and perfect practice. And I'm excited for spring bear. It's pretty, I don't know what your snowpack is in Salt Lake there, but it's pretty deep over here. Like, we got way more snow than I thought ever in March. I mean, we got dumped on. We, we've got some really, really high. Um, I'm on the north end of the, the valley. Um, and our stuff is completely clear. Wow. So, so I can probably, 
um, I could probably get up in glass and kind of start getting some cameras and some stuff up into the, the main basins and some of the areas I want to elk hunt and, and look at mule deer in this year already. That's cool. So when do you head to Redding, California? Uh, we head out Wednesday afternoon next week. And basically, for those that don't know, like Redding is like the 3D shoot of all 3D shoots. Tell us about it. It is, it is incredible. It is almost 1,700 archers. Um, Redding is a marked 3D shoot. There is 70 total targets that you shoot over the course of three days. Every target gets two arrows. Um, so you've got anywhere from four yards to 101 yards. You go up a canyon, you shoot across the canyon, you come back down, you climb up over the top, you go into another canyon, work your way down, loop back around. Every target has an orange dot on it, and the dot varies in size depending on the distance of the target. Um, so like the, the Sasquatch, the Bigfoot that's at 101, or depending on what your rangefinder is, 102, is a 13-inch dot. Okay. And then like the butterflies at 3.8 yards is like the size of a quarter. Okay, that's cool. So what's the scoring system? So a dot is worth 11. Outside of the dot, you have a secondary ring that's a very generous. Usually, it's about a normal eight, um, eight ring on a right. 3D. Yeah. Okay. Um, so anything inside that ring scores as a 10. And then anything outside of that scores as an eight. So you get so eight, it's, for it's foam, ten eight for foam, 10 for foam, 10 for the circle or the big vital area that would be a normal eight and then 11 for nailing the dot and that adds up pretty quick yep and again two two arrows per target so a max score of 22 for each of 70 targets oh Um, wow 70 targets is that in one day that's in two days right three days oh three so you're shooting for three days Yep, so you've got, you shoot 25 targets the first and the second day, and it takes about five hours to shoot 25 targets, because again, you've got two arrows per, and then on Sunday, the third day, you shoot 20 targets, they tally all the scores, and then they have all the shoot-offs. Oh, there so, is shoot-offs. Okay, so, so like, what's a, what's like a high-end high end score to qualify for the shoot-off out of whatever, 1,500 points or plus, what is... Uh, so 1540 is a perfect score um thank you for knowing that that's impressive yep yep last year's last year's first place shoot off with very very windy conditions was a 1535 so three guys dropped a total of five points each Uh. and then there was a there was a shoot off for i think seven points down and there was four guys there and then there was another shoot off at 10 points down and i think there was three shooters there and then they had they had shoot offs all the way down to i think i think 13 points down okay and 13 points down total was like 25 shooters on the men's uh open pro huh. record at that event is a fifteen thirty nine. it's one point down and it was actually shot on the 88-yard elk herd, not the Sasquatch, is where the point was dropped. Oh, wow. So, And all, all shoot-offs are shot at what they call the elk herd. Um, it's an 88-yard 
and it's like 13 elk they kind of have scattered at the end of the valley and there's two bulls facing each other that have the dots on them and those are your two scoring animals dude i okay so number one i need you to steal one of those elk targets are they reinhardt targets <laughs> no actually the club there makes them oh, okay i need you to steal one and ship it it won't be a big deal uh, <laughs> i had i can shoot out to 100 in my backyard now that we moved in i am i cannot pull the trigger on an 1800 reinhardt elk target but I need one. I'm I'm jonesing for a 3D elk. Just so just ship one yeah. up, man. That is you, so yeah, cool. You and me both. That is such <laughs> a cool shoot. So what's uh who won it last year for the Open Pro? Uh, Steve Anderson. Steve Anderson did, and Steve was a boss. So Steve was actually in two shoot offs um, because they do have a team event. So Steve stepped up for the team event and shot. Uh, 88 yards he was he dotted it he was the closest to center out of the group so his team won their tie break then he had like a almost an hour wait without any practice shots stepped up for the individual shoot off for first place and his arrow at 88 yards was just under half an inch difference from his team shoot arrow Good God. He shoots for you guys, right? He does. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've heard of him. Okay, well, that's pretty cool. So you guys all go down there, and that's that's definitely something I want to do one of these days. That's awesome. And, okay. And, and truly, every, every Western, and not every just Western, every bow hunter, no matter where you're from, you need to make plans at some point to go to that event. So registration, I think, typically opens in December. Just get registered. Get it on your calendar. Don't wait. As soon as it's open, get on the list and go out and have fun. It is, it is incredible. There's, there is more trash talking and jarring at each other and just camaraderie and laid back having fun. You won't have another event like it anywhere. The ASAs won't do it. The IBOs won't do it. Um, none of the major target shoots have that kind of atmosphere and attitude surrounding the event. It's incredible. Wow. Dude, that is, I'm pumped. I got to get kids to bed here shortly. So I got to ask you something we've talked about before, but anyone listening, I have shot the carbon bow since they've come out. I have a lot of guys message me through however, email, DM, whatever. And they want to know, is it really worth it to shoot a carbon bow over aluminum? And I always tell everybody the same thing as far as, hey, I don't care what bow you shoot. Here's what I shoot. Here's why. It's what works for me, and it's tough. I put it through the paces. But I tell people, go shoot, especially new archeries, new archery people, is go shoot them all blindfolded and just pick the one that you you feel like shoots the best for you. Because all bows shoot awesome. It's the guy behind it or gal. So... We're going to skip all that nonsense and just get down to the why behind the, you know, and what's going on with the RX-1 for 2018. I know a lot of dudes are, are on the fence, and, and this is your shot, Evan, to get them maybe on the other side. So here you go. So I, I'm like you. I, I've been, you know, the quote-unquote carbon snob. Um, I love all the, the different features, and, and if you want to know more about it, uh, you can definitely go visit the Hoyt website and look at some of our old literature on, you know, the engineering and the technology we put into it. Um, for me, what it comes down to is really the versatility of carbon. Um, and by that, I mean you're, you're getting a lighter weight bow right out of the gate. 
So if you're one of those crossover guys, like I consider myself where um, I live out west, I'm hunting elk, I'm hunting antelope, I'm hunting mule deer in the high country, and then I'm using that same bow because I'm not allowed to change, I get to go back to Kansas and I'm hunting whitetail. And if I can tag out early, man, I grew up just across the, the state line in Nebraska, so I've still got ground I can go back there and hunt. They're all different terrains, environments, conditions, climates, and times of year for season. When I go up and I'm hunting elk, you and I both know you're covering eight to 14 plus miles a day. I don't want to carry an anchor. I'm building a lighter weight setup because I know my shot is going to be in in darker, deeper, heavier, thicker timber. I'm not going to have to shoot that far. Um, You know, if I'm shooting, you know, 50, 55 yards, that's a poke for elk in, in most of the timber that I hunt. So I'm okay going a lighter weight setup and allowing a little extra pin movement and float on an animal that size. My typical setup is going to be quiver, sight, stabilizer, and I will throw just enough weight in one ounce discs on a side adapter to balance out that bow. And I'm running. It's going to be super lightweight. I'm going to get out there, cover ground and go. Antelope and mule deer in the high country I'm going to go a little bit longer stabilizer setup. I'm going to add a little bit more weight because I know that shot distance is going to be a little more. Um, So I'm either running a 15-inch front with one or two ounces on the front and a 12-inch side rod with three to five or an offset 12-inch with, you know, maybe four to six um, and kind of pulling everything off to the side so I'm not running a back bar personal preference i do like longer setups on my stabilizers when i'm in the high country because the farther away i can get that weight from my bow i get the same amount of reaction um, and movement and stabilization as if it's on a shorter rod but i don't need the amount of weight so i can keep the overall setup a little bit lower you know when you're at twelve thousand feet in colorado and i'm six miles deep when i go to kansas i am planning on wind If you haven't been there before, it won't take you long to go to a shop and probably buy more weight to get on your bow. Yep. Um, Most of the time, I'm running either a 10, 12, or 15-inch system. If I'm running 15, um, I am targeting a whitetail buck. Um, I am in a tree stand, and I've got big cottonwoods, wide open lanes. I don't have to worry about trying to get around branches. Um, But when I run a 10 or a 12 going after mule deer... I'm running uh, 11 to 14 ounces if I'm running a single bar in the front. Uh, My setup this year, um, I was a 10-inch rod up front with a 2-inch fuse end cap, so it ended up being a 12-inch front bar, and I had 8 ounces on the front, and then I ran a 10-inch back bar with the, the... rubber damper and weights i was seven so in in bars and brackets and weight i was able to add over another pound just to my bow and it's carbon so it's lightweight so again i can move those around i can get the balance where i want it i can get the weight where i want it and if you had done that with some of our manufacturers bows that start out at four and a half pounds by the time that sucker's all said and done, you're talking a nine or ten pound setup. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. So no thanks. Yeah, you know, for me the carbon is super light, which I like a light bow. I really do. 
uh, like a low profile quiver and I just I want to be you know I take my bow through a lot of brush and it's so steep like Idaho is straight up straight down especially the further north you go and everything is really brushy there's brush fields alders huckleberry brush and then thick reprod whatever it's like Oregon but it's not minus the rain and then you're at 5,000 feet and it's steep and it's straight up or straight down and all your shots are angled. Your third level is a must, not a should. The other thing is the, is the whole cold weather hunting for whitetails in late November where, I, where my season opens November 25th. I don't want to grab a cold ass and aluminum riser and shoot that. The carbon definitely resists you know, the ravishes of cold weather. And as corny as that sounds, that's kind of a that's a bigger deal too. So there's some pluses, and, but the price point for bows has gone up. But relatively speaking, the durability, the longevity. You, I, the last guy on my podcast, and I haven't published this yet, he's shooting the same bow for ten years. You you can make a bow last a long time, so it is an investment. Yep, and and that's a great way to look at it. You know, you replace strings and cables every year, depending on how much you shoot it every other, and you've essentially just re-upped the life of it. You know, and you had talked about the profile of the bow. The other nice thing about carbon is it's very sleek. It's very streamlined. The riser itself is very open. It's very airy. Um, and it lets a lot of light movement through it. So you have a lot of natural light that's able to move through, create natural shadows, help you blend in. And create less of a black blob when you're out spotting and stalking or sitting in that tree stand or you know having that bull come in and having to move just enough because he's not coming to your right like you thought he was. He's over on your left, and you didn't set up that way, and you need to make a quick adjustment. Yeah. Uh, well, well, there's your spiel on Hoyt. Let's get back to business. Um, what are you doing for workouts? What programming are you following? What's your schedule look like? Kind of your template, your not your micro, but your macro view of your training um so i'm doing i'm doing a five day um straight gym weights um i'm not doing i haven't been doing a crossfit type functional stuff what's Um, crossfit yeah you know this this functional movement that started in in you know really 2008 is when it kind of got got its life and its breath going and man if you haven't for those of you who are listening obviously you know you know dan's background but if you haven't at least watched crossfit competitions you gotta go holy cow talk about aspirations my my old time goal and i know you and i have talked about it my goal is to go to the crossfit games that is way down the road i'm 34 years old they have a master's division that i'm looking at for you know seven years down the road that's that's kind of my fitness goal that i will be going to but the one thing i needed to do and i know i would have to do to get there is i need strength um i graduated high school at 145 pounds all through college i fluctuated between 145 and 155 when i got to colorado and 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 got into things i'm a very very big workaholic i wasn't working out i wasn't eating right i was working 80 hours a week in the shop and went on a family vacation saw a picture of me at the beach in the ocean and looked myself in the mirror and started making some changes um i hired a, a buddy who got his degree in exercise and sports science uh we started working remotely together kind of 
doing programming specifically for my elk hunt. Um, I went from 184 pounds and like 26% body fat down to 12% body fat at 172 pounds, 173. And just realized I was moving better. I was sleeping better. Everything about the way I was living my life was improving. It's awesome. And, and being a division one athlete, like I've always been in the gym, but because of the specific sport I was doing, I had so many regulations. My specific sport, which was rifle, yes, there are NCAA Division One scholarships to go and shoot guns. Um, <laughs> I was one of them. I had a full-ride athletic scholarship for it. Hell yeah, that's awesome. Um, the sport of rifle, when it comes to NCAA testing regulations, is the most strict across all NCAA sports as far as what you can take and what you can't. Um, every year, every single athlete is given a list of, okay, these are the things to look at. Like, if you need to take a pain medication, here's the ingredients that you cannot take. So if it's in pain medication, you can't take that one. you got to find something else, even if it's prescribed by a doctor. Yeah. So... My whole thing was, I mean, straight endurance and very, very light weights because you're you're in a jacket and a pant that is either double canvas. So if you have a Davis wall tent or you know any canvas tent company, something like that, or you've all been around them, imagine two layers of that pressed together around your entire body for 10 hours a day that's essentially what you're shooting in. You've got five buttons on the on the jacket. You've got straps on the shoulder to tighten it up depending on what your position is shooting. Uh, you've got a Velcro on your pant, and you've got zippers down the back of each leg to help you get into position. And once you're there, you aren't going very far. So yeah. you, you have to fit into that. And when they cost $1,600 for a set, you're not buying one every year. You're getting one, and like we talked about bows and making them last, you're making that last for four or five years until the materials break down enough because you're going to sweat your nutsack off in them enough that the material breaks down and it no longer maintains its stiffness and rigidity. You have to go get something else or until you get big enough that, hey, your jacket is not overlapping the required amount. It's now illegal. You cannot physically shoot because you are out of spec. Right. So I knew I, I only had, at best, a 10-pound window to play with all through college. Yeah. <laughs> so so that, that was my thing. And, and when I finally got done and I put the guns away for competition and, and quote-unquote, stepped away and retired, I was like, man, I, I can start working out and, and I can start building my, my muscle strength again. And, and so that's what I've been doing. My current split, uh, Monday is back. Tuesday is chest, Wednesday is legs, Thursday is shoulders, Friday is arms, Saturday is a cardio day. I throw abs and calves rotating through uh, Monday through Friday. Um, I do cardio every single day, whether that's interval training um, on a bike or a Stairmaster or on a treadmill. Um, and if I'm doing interval, it's usually 20 to 25 minutes after my weights. Um, if I'm doing steady state, it's 35 to 45 minutes. And honestly, if you're going to do it, you may as well just go and step on a treadmill, get that sucker peaked up on incline, keep it on a three mile an hour pace 
because you will burn three times the amount of calories doing that than sitting on a bike for 45 minutes. I've tried it. Yeah, man, that is awesome. So that's your five-day macro view. And what's your tips for guys listening that maybe they're in a program, they're either it's mundane, they're bored, they maybe are plateauing. Any quick little tips on how to bust through a plateau and, and make it more fun or exciting or interesting? Very, very it. When I, when I was getting to that point, um, one thing I did is, is, you know, thank you, Internet, go into Instagram and, you know, hit some of the, the gym or the gym life hashtags. I went through some old archives. I found some, uh, some German volume stuff, some old Arnold routines, um, kind of started mixing those in. You know, and if you're a guy that's, you know, you're working on your chest and you're always doing bench and you're always doing incline and, you know, there's, there's those certain movements that, I mean, you might get into a routine where you're always doing those. Move them around in a workout, superset them with something else. You know, whether you want to do a push pull or a push push or a pull pull. If you're always doing barbell, throw some dumbbells in there. Definitely, so dumbbells are the most you know, underrated pieces to destroy you. And that's I'm glad you and, said switch to dumbbells. I mean, check it out. And you know, and, and a lot of guys, you know, um, as much as I travel, sometimes you'll get to a hotel and thirty pound dumbbells is what you get. Yep. All right. Well, it's Tuesday. I need to do chest. So I'm supposed to do, you know, a, a 15, 12, 10, 10, 20 routine. I'm just going to grab those 30s and I'm literally going to go to max effort for five sets. Yep. So, you know, and, and vary how you're doing it. Don't just blast through them and try and rip out as many reps as possible slow it down feel the fibers of your chest or you know whatever specific muscle you're working feel the fibers open up and expand on the concentric or the lowering phase of the movement and squeeze them push that blood into them and really squeeze them and push them through the the eccentric and the the raising motion you're getting next level and that's so and that's that's one of the biggest things that i Again, trying to relearn everything. Um, my mind-muscle connection wasn't there the first two years. Um, I've really worked on prior perception where you're lifting with your eyes closed because you're trying to feel the physical muscle that you're specifically wanting to work. And that is some of the gains. You, you're not going to see them. You know, it takes, it takes two weeks for you to feel better. It takes four weeks for you to see results and in eight weeks people are going to start making comments that's awesome yeah, so so don't don't rush into it yeah definitely and you are consistent that is definitely something i've noticed about you um we didn't talk about elk in elk hunting at all and it'd be a shame if we didn't so do you have any elk tags coming up for 2018 thus far um i will do a utah general elk tag um, I'm still trying to see if I can fit a Colorado one in. Um, I've got a couple good um, over-the-counter spots that I really I'm dying to get in there. Um, I don't know if I can fit in with my schedule. I've got two weeks of vacation left. I know I'm going to use a full week, maybe a week plus a day in Kansas. Um, try to time stuff around the Upland opener, but um, yeah, I, I need to go kill some elk. My uh, elk repertoire has not been a real good one here the last couple of years. Well, I mean, so. I know elk hunting is something that you do, you've spent some time in. What are some mistakes you've made early on or things that are haunting you that you're like, okay, I ain't doing that shit anymore. That didn't work. 
What are some stuff that you are not going to do when you go elk hunting? Honestly, biggest lesson is I need to be less afraid of being aggressive even on public land hunts. I am very aggressive when it comes to mule deer, and it seems like when I start hunting elk, I'm very, very timid and kind of standoffish. Um, I It costs me an opportunity on a very, very good probably 320-plus bull this year in Colorado. Light was getting low. I saw him raking a tree, started moving in. He moved his cows, and rather than go up the backside of a ridge and drop in on him because I knew where he was headed, I kind of stayed back called a little bit got him turned and ran out of light and he stepped into my lane at 35 yards and i physically could not see the pin on my sights so um a lot of it i think a lot of it is area dependent um i've started kind of focusing on one or two areas trying to learn herd movements patterns bedding areas you know focusing on learning the specific area um and by by learning an area i truly think that you can learn the animals themselves um, what they respond to, especially during different times of the years. Um, when, when are the bulls really breaking up? When do they start herding up? What do the general herd bulls look like? How do they respond? What do the satellites look like? What kind of calls are going to work? Is this going to be an area where I can bugle and I can be more vocal and aggressive with bull vocalizations and have that response and be more aggressive or do I need to sit back and do real light, soft cow calls and wait 20 minutes before I do something else? So I'm with you. The, the, uh, the more I hunt elk, the, the more aggressive I am. I am, I'm ultra aggressive when the time's right. And I love it when my favorite time to kill bulls, big ones is when they're distracted, they're trying to defend their harem and you got a pesky satellite or two or even another big bull that is that is when their guard is down. That is when you get ridiculously aggressive and err on the side of being too aggressive. And I think you'll have more success on big bulls that way. You know, with tiptoeing around and stuff, there's definitely a time and a place. I mean, I do a lot of tiptoeing around through the woods. I tell people not to, but I do when a herd bull is pushing cows and he doesn't have any other satellites, he's still going to be bugling to keep everybody in check and keep everybody going to where they're supposed to be going. He's going to let you know where his location is, and they can hear good. So sometimes you do have to sneak in as these bulls are moving. You have to be fast when you can be fast, and you have to slow when you need to be slow, and you just learn that through experience. You can't teach that timing, but it is very important. Colorado's got some great over-the-counter areas. So does Idaho, where I hunt primarily. Mm -hmm. I've hunted everywhere um, just about, but what are some good areas without telling your spot? where people listening could hone in on Colorado. They didn't draw anything this year, and they want to come out west, or they want to drive to Colorado. It's got the most elk out of any state. What's a good part of the state to check out? Um, kind of that that northwest area. There, there's a lot of good over-the-counter areas, and when you look at it, the majority of that's the White River National Forest, which has the largest population of Rocky Mountain elk in the state of Colorado. Um, so your your opportunity is up, even if you're willing to just take a cow. You know, herd numbers are there, bull to cow ratios are there. Um, it gets a ton of pressure because of the numbers and the density there. So don't go in expecting to see that you know 300 plus inch bull that you're going to see these guys kill on TV because they're killing them on private land if they're in those kind of units. You know, go in expecting to 
take a legal four-point bull or better, or at least a five-inch brow tine. Yep. If if you're on over the counter, if you're hunting public land, I'm not picky. No, especially if your so, freezer doesn't have any elk meat in it, you you better get some elk yep. meat in there, buddy. Yep. Yep, that's yep. for sure. You know, for guys listening that are wondering, well, Dan, what about Idaho? Where do you go? Um, I don't – if you want to hunt up where I hunt, it's units one through nine. It's called the Panhandle. It's like I already described, steep and deep and brushy, and you can leave your binos at home because you won't yep. be glassing for elk unless you find some logging country. But if you find logging country, you find roads. And if you find roads, you find lots of hunters. That's just how it is wherever you go. Um, But you can get away from roads and find some pretty thick national forest to hunt. It's loaded. There are wolves, and there are still elk because there are wolves there. And so the best bet is to maybe do pick an area and just start hunting it and learning it. And the first year might be just a learning curve year where you're learning the area trying to figure out where some elk are at and then you just build on that experience um i suggest guys that want to use binos and hunt some good density of elk to head to the southeast corner of idaho and check out some of those over-the-counter units and filter through those uh anything close to montana southeast is going to be pretty good i like anything outside of the salmon area and and all those areas but that's a long drive for me that's why i generally don't hunt that area just because it's just a long ways to go but um and then you run into some private property game down there a little bit with um some ag in the valleys so elk like in montana a lot of places in montana elk will they'll sleep during the day on public but you got to find them or try to get them between going from pivots down in the valley you know alfalfa or some sort of ag ground uh, and catch them in transition to their bedding area. And then some will learn to just stay on private as the season progresses. But Idaho, check out southeast Idaho. And, and when you're saying northwest, you're not saying the corner because that the northwest corner of Colorado is, is all like, draw. And yeah. it's, it's impossible um, draw almost because of the point yeah. creep. So you're talking more you're, of the – what was the name of the national forest? Uh, White River National Forest. Uh, okay. So you're looking uh, uh, Rifle, Meeker, Craig, kind of kind of up in that area. And I can't even think of the units off the top of my head. Yeah. 23, 24, yeah, some of those. Colorado's, they just throw a number. They, I seriously think they literally cut out like a bunch of numbers and just threw them up in the air over a map and went, that's how we're going to number them. I need to have somebody from Parks, Colorado Parks and Wildlife like explain the randomness of the unit ordering. It doesn't make sense to me. My OCD freaks out. I can't keep it straight. Montana's another one that's got so many. Well, it's just a big state, but I can't keep them all straight in my head. I was going to say, the only thing that makes sense about Colorado is if you see a unit like the Sangres, 86 and 861 just south of it, at one point that was all one unit that they broke up and added a one to the back end of it. Mm. Tricksters. But that's good to know. I mean, that's that'll make the pressure a little bit better. And, you know, a Colorado uh, over-the-counter tag is really not that expensive. It's in the five $600 range, if I remember correctly. Last time I was there was 2013. And uh, it's, it's you know, I got into elk. It took me a few days, but I found them. And uh, Idaho's four, just over $400. That doesn't include your hunting license, which is at least 150 bucks. So, you know, pretty reasonable if you're on a budget. And, you know, before you buy all the cool gear, buy tags. That's what I tell people. And uh, yep. you you got some food prep to go do, Evan, but I really appreciate you sitting down, uh, the dad life, getting the kids yep. in the bath, getting them in bed, and then sneaking on here, and you still got a bunch to do. Sorry to push your evening so late, but... Uh, ah, you're good. Love talking to you, man, and I wish we lived closer. 
Yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> That's cool. Well, thanks for coming on, man, and have a great rest of the spring, and I'm sure we'll be in touch. Oh, yeah. You got my number. If you need anything, let me know. And, and uh, yeah, you're going to do this again. Hit me up. All right. Have a good night, brother. You too, sir. We'll see you, buddy. Later.